This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Music, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kimberly Mack, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ann Powers about her book, Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music. Ann Powers is one of the nation's leading popular music writers. Since 2011, she has been NPR's music's critic and correspondent. She has held various writing and editing positions at publications such as the San Francisco Weekly, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Village Voice. She was also the senior curator at the Experience Music Project, now the Museum of Popular Culture in Seattle. Her books include Weird Like Us, My Bohemian America, Tori Amos, Piece by Piece, which she co-wrote with Amos, and Rock She Wrote, Women Write About Rock, Rap, and Pop, which she co-edited with Evelyn McDonald. She was also the editor of Best Music Writing 2010. Powers earned a BA in creative writing from San Francisco State University and an MA in American Literature from UC Berkeley. She lives in Nashville. Ann Powers, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So we'll just start at the beginning. Um, can you tell me a little bit about Good Booty and how you came to write it? Yeah, I've been doing this music writing thing for many decades and uh, over many decades when you when you are a writer for your whole life, you you notice themes that keep coming up or obsessions, passions. And my passion and obsession has always been uh, understanding how sexuality and gender works within popular music, how popular music actually forms a language uh, through which we, uh, I'm going to, my book talks about Americans but really, people around the world understand uh, sexuality, uh, experience their bodies, and talk to each other about um, about desire, you know, and and about all of the uh, omniverse surrounding desire. Uh, I'm, I, I guess, I'm kind of, you know, I'm known as a feminist critic or someone who writes about gender a lot, and that definitely interests me. But I always intended this book to be um, about the erotic. Not not so much about identity, but about expression, experience, um, 
sensuality, uh, all of the uh, that that realm versus one that was strictly about identity. Although definitely, as we can talk about identity, factors in because as humans in society, of course, we experience desire and longing and yearning through the lens of our identities. So anyway. So for many years, I was writing about this material in different ways in all of my work, whether it was in previous books, my book with Tori, she definitely is interested in these same themes, or in you know my journalism and criticism. So um, when I came to when it came time for me to sort of do this this passion project of mine, you know, the book that you were born to write. Uh, I actually was having lunch with uh, Josh Kuhn, a friend who uh, people might know from his uh, work in Los Angeles. He He's a professor at USC, and he does a lot of amazing work on, on border music and border culture and also on, on Jewish American music. Anyway, super smart, great guy. And I, we were talking, and I'm like, you know, I just don't know what should I – what how do I frame my my – big book, as they say. And, and he's like, and you got to write that book on sexuality and music, because that's what you've been doing all this time. And you've got to own it in a book. So uh, I thank Josh for pushing me over the edge to finally write the proposal that I then wrote. But in the process of writing the book, I discovered that it was to, to approach this topic, um, this very, very uh, multi- faceted topic was also to approach other fundamental elements of human experience, uh, most notably, uh, especially talking about American culture, uh, race, and uh, the, you know, the interaction of people uh, in culture uh, across different uh, boundaries of identity, I guess. And, And so that became another focus of the book. Okay. How, how long, so you mentioned it was a passion project. How long did it take you to write the book? In many ways, my entire life. <laughs> 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 I kind of write about that in the, in the preface. You know, I talk about when I was a kid, I first, you know, when I fell in love with pop music, it was always about uh, experiencing desire in some ways. And, and, you know, I fell in love with, with popular music and, and Paul McCartney at the same moment. <laughs> <laughs> he was my first crush and loving the Beatles music and loving his music. I'm not, I was not a original Beatle, Beatle maniac. I was actually born in 64, the year the Beatles came to America. But um, it's funny. I think there was a reissue or a release of a Beatles record in, uh, I think it was 1977 or so. So I would have been 13 and it was Beatles live at the Hollywood bowl. And it's interesting recording because it's really full of girls screaming, you know, and mm-hmm. around that same time that that record came out, I also, I had discovered um, the white album and magical mystery tour, which a friend of mine, her mom had those records. And I had uh, as importantly discovered the, the photographs of Paul <laughs> that were <laughs> included with those albums. And I had just developed this kind of crazy crush on Paul McCartney who, or, or on the Paul McCartney who, you know, existed in 1967 or whatever, 68, 69. 
So I was already kind of spanning the decades with the magic of recording technology. But from that moment, I was always very engaged with music as a conduit for um, exploring desire, I guess. Uh, and, you know, so I think that's always been sort of a place where I stand when I think about music. Um, the book itself took uh, about six years from, from proposal to publication. So this leads us very nicely into the next question. Um, your title, what is Good Booty? Well, Good Booty is whatever you make of it, I suppose. <laughs> but historically, um, the title sources from uh, a song that Little Richard recorded in 1955 at Cosimo Matassa's studio in New Orleans. And um, Little Richard had been playing on this club circuit in, in, uh, throughout the South. Uh, roadhouses and and bars where um, where lots of different kinds of performers frequented, including drag performers and and you know queer performers. Although of course they weren't known uh, under that identity identity marker at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this song uh, he either discovered or sort of elaborated upon and created. Um, from other sources, and the original lyrics to Tutti Frutti uh, were quite raunchy, and uh, with phrases like "if you grease it, make it easy," um, referring to various uh, erotic <laughs> encounters. <laughs> and "good booty" was part of that lyric. Um, when he got into the studio with his producer Bumps Blackwell, and um, and you know, sat down to record the song, uh, Bumps thought, you know, this is never going to get on the radio. It's just too dirty. So a young woman named Dorothy Labostri uh, was hanging out trying to get a break as a songwriter. And and uh, they enlisted Dorothy to rewrite the song with Lil Richard. And that's how we got the um, kind of nonsense lyrics that we know, you know, tutti fruity, ah rudy, that kind of thing. But in fact, the original lyric was tutti fruity, good booty. <laughs> That's great. So you you talk about sex in the book, and then you also talk about the erotic, as you said. What is the distinction you're making between the two? How are you defining the erotic? Uh, Well, absolutely referring to Audre Lorde's idea of the erotic, which she talks about in her essay entitled The Uses of the Erotic, um, where she talks about the erotic as the core uh, energy or spirit, I guess, if you were into that kind of language, inside a person that um, is about enjoying yourself in a way. <laughs> but but it's deeper than that. When we say that, I think uh, it sounds almost like you know f- a flippant idea of self care, or you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, like watch going and watching Magic Mike if you're into that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever you're into. Um, but really what Audre Lorde is getting in, at in her essay is this essence within people um, that's about uh, relishing lo- your life, you know, and relishing yourself and your ability to connect with others. And I, that sounds like a big blousy idea, but Audre Lorde talks about it as the 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 element that makes resilience possible in people. And what I found as I was pursuing this topic, and I didn't necessarily expect this when I started writing this book, was that um, this, that story, that story of that spark 
is really the story of popular music in America because it is the story of uh, African American people in America, you know, and um, and all American popular music is rooted in African American music. So uh, from the time, you know, from the the big, very colonial beginnings of our country to the present, and, and so tracing that thread of um, how music, uh, you know, is a is a language uh, and a and a way of preserving cultures that that the dominant, you know, the state and other forces would have eradicated, and also a way of celebrating uh, one's humanity, one's community, one's intimate connections with others. I found myself also tracing, uh, uh, I guess, a political story, uh, uh, the fundamental story about about race in our in our, in our nation. Also, I will say one more thing, (laughs) which is that I think, uh, eroticism that that's that sense of the erotic, um, defining the erotic in this way. Uh, another way to think about it is, um, the erotic becomes the, uh, the, the setting. That's not exactly right, but it becomes the, I usually say the language, but, uh, of encounter with quote unquote the other, you know, and so um, another American story, fundamentalist. Oh, sorry, another fundamental American story is um, the story of uh, very different kinds of people meeting and connecting uh, and forming a new nation, forming new society. Um, certainly, under uh, hierarchies of oppression, which I always want to acknowledge and talk about a lot in the book, but also Mm -hmm. like, uh, in intimate ways and, and music becomes the, 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 the way of telling those stories as well, if that makes any sense. It does. Um, does, does joy factor in there? Absolutely. And I think Audre Lorde would be happy that you asked that question. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Joy. Um, (laughs) Dancing, you know, that's why dancing is so important in this, story and and why in the you know in my first very long chapter on new orleans and um kind of starting with uh uh, pre-louisiana purchase new orleans and going uh forward all the way to the dawn of the 20th century and the birth of jazz um that chapter is as much about dancing in some ways and the way that dancing was a was uh both an activity and a code for um for people crossing lines they weren't supposed to cross and also for people preserving cultures that weren't supposed to be preserved. Um, and of course it's also a way of, of touching other people literally <laughs> and, uh, and involved in that is a lot of joy. Yeah. Great. Um, so in your book, you, so first of all, good booty is a, it's an impressively researched book. Um, where you engage source material from African-American and American history, American popular music, black feminist and womanist theories, and more. What were some of your challenges in Mm. pulling all of this together? Well, a major challenge uh, is just my identity, you know, my subject position as a white, heterosexual, cishet woman, right? So I had to... I fundamentally believe that that it is uh, absolutely necessary for me to think every day, every time I sit down to write or 
I talk to people or I talk to someone like you for a podcast or um, do anything that, that is uh, an act of communicating my ideas about popular music that I have to really consider my subject position, my, my privilege. So, you know, there's a long history in music writing of romanticizing uh, the erotic uh, and also of perpetuating stereotypes of uh, people of color as primitive, as, you know, quote unquote, more sexual, as quote unquote, you know, more free, but also sort of more dangerous. And, and a lot of those, those myths have been propagated uh, through music writing, honestly, so much. And so I had to be careful uh, about my own susceptibility to those myths and also uh, in using source material to always like acknowledge when you know, white writers are writing about um, people of color and their and their um, culture to to always point that out, while also trying you know that's the material we you know in a lot of cases that's the material we have we have uh, no firsthand accounts for example of um, enslaved people in Congo Square I talk about Congo Square in New Orleans where enslaved people were. Um, brought together on Sundays and allowed a market and uh, often danced and uh, where white observers uh, even entered the ring where they were dancing. That to me is a very sort of like a ground zero for a lot of American popular culture. And, um, but how can I talk about that? (laughs) You know, and the only (laughs) accounts we have are, are, are from white observers. So I just had to be really delicate with that. So that was definitely a major challenge that I hope I uh, lived up to. Uh, another challenge is, you know, this book is written for a general audience. And as, as you know, Kim, because we're friends uh, <laughs> and we've become friends through the pop conference, which is a great gathering of all kinds of scholars that always happens uh, in April of every year um, where people from within and beyond the Academy get together to talk about ideas I'm very much a part of this kind of community where um, scholars who are writing in an academic style, style and journalists and critics come together. I was writing for, you know, uh, HarperCollins and for Day Street Books, and this is a general interest press. And so, you know, I had to figure out what's the language, what's the language that I can use to um to engage with theory, as you were saying, engage with uh, the discourse that's happening within the academy, while also making this vivid and readable for mm-hmm. someone who might not have ever picked up, you know, a book by, I don't know, uh, Farah Jasmine Griffin, <laughs> you know, or Imani Perry, mm-hmm. or or uh, so many of the scholars that I respect. Uh, so that. And I should say both of those writers write for a general audience too. So, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm part of a community of writers who are really trying to bridge that gap. And um, it's a community that's flourished in the past few decades in the, in the U.S., but it, it is still a challenge. I mean, I know, you know, some people might say this book is too academic. Others might say it's not academic enough, but that's where I live. I live in that space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so, what was? Did you have any unexpected joys that came out of <laughs> reaching yes. to the archive? 
oh my gosh, so many. I, I had so many unexpected joys. I, finding stuff, uh, you know, one unexpected joy was um, going to the archive at Fisk University and going through the papers of Thomas A. Dorsey, the founding father mm-hmm. of uh, contemporary go- or 20th century gospel music, of gospel music, really. And, uh, you know, touching his his own papers, you know, where he wrote songs, like the the very paper upon which he wrote songs. Of course, I was wearing gloves, so don't worry. But, <laughs> but you know, finding stuff in those archives, also going uh, through Florence Mills, the Florence Mills archive, I became a little bit obsessed with Florence Mills, who was a, um, a theatrical performer in the uh, U.S. in the teens and 20s. And she died very young, and she never recorded anything, uh, either on film or in a, you know, an audio recording. And so she's somewhat forgotten, but, uh, she was the, one of the greatest stars of the New York stage. And she was a very modern performer. And I argue that she not only embodied this kind of new, uh, new woman, uh, among African-American entertainers, which she absolutely did, but that in general, she should be acknowledged as the embodiment of the new woman as much as any flapper who, who is, you know, who, whom F. Scott Fitzgerald immortalized. And uh, it was really great to go to the Schomburg and, uh, and be able to look through her papers as well. So there were lots of thrill moments like that. I, I uh, also got to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and do research there. I found a whole stash of um, uh, fan letters that uh, Eddie Cochran's mother had saved. And that was really mm-hmm. fun yeah. to go through those. And Eddie Cochran died very young in an automobile accident, but he was another, along with Elvis and Little Richard and, and Chuck Berry, was a, a, you know, a major rock and roll star. And uh, looking at these fan letters, I... I I learned things about how uh, fans related to those early rockers that I really hadn't thought about before, like how intimate and ongoing those relationships sometimes were and how important those teenage girls were to um, supporting the careers uh, of these guys. And um, it was just fun to read those letters too, because, you know, there's nothing like a teenage girl uh, (laughs) and uh, the way she talks to a boy she likes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, so you mentioned Florence Mills. You also talked about gospel pioneer Dorothy Love Coates. Um, oh, yeah. Are there any other underappreciated artists like these that maybe you might, maybe you didn't get to include in the book? Oh, interesting. Talk? Interesting question. Well, um, one, I don't, I don't think these people are underappreciated. So <laughs> I'm currently, but I'm going to talk about them. I, I am currently working on a new project that's focused on, centered on Joni Mitchell, looking at singer-songwriters of the uh, late 60s, early 70s in Los Angeles and beyond. And I've been thinking a lot about Joni and Laurel Canyon artists and um, also people like Bob Dylan. And all of those people got very short shrift in my book. Uh, you know, for the 60s chapter, I chose to focus um, on certain scenes and on just a few particular stars. I, I, you know, I have a section on Jim Morrison or Janis Joplin. I have a section on Jimi Hendrix. But I, just by nature of, you know, the limitations of writing a book, I, I couldn't get into everybody's story. So it's been really interesting to think about um, the singer-songwriter tradition and how while we might not think of that as, as such a, um, an overt expression, 
of of eroticism and sexuality. Uh, in fact, it, it was really a key uh, a key locus of of storytelling about the changing attitudes about sexuality, and certainly exploring Joni's work has been fruitful on that count. So, um, you know. I'm I'm okay that she's not in this book because she'll get her own book, <laughs> but I just want to say now um, I gave her a little short shrift in this one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so you begin your book as you mentioned earlier in the antebellum South uh, with a story within your story um, about a memoir by Thomas C. Nichols about his experience at seventeen visiting New Orleans and witnessing a procession of wealthy young white women dressed in grand finery, walking barefoot to a local ballroom to dance uh, through the mud and attended by their black slaves. Throughout your book, you share many colorful individual stories, sort of unexpected stories. Why did you decide to use this approach when writing Good Booty? I suppose that's my uh, journalistic side, uh, pushing me toward, you know, specifics and, and uh, people and voices and when you're doing archival work, as anyone knows who's listening to this podcast who does that kind of work, those voices are embedded in letters and, and, and memoirs and, and uh, autobiographical accounts like the one you just cited. So I was always looking for those anecdotes that would exemplify an idea um, or a trend. Uh, also, I think I don't know. For me, I kind of fell in love with these characters, you know. And as I said before, talking about Florence Mills, I would, I would really have a little relationship with them, you know. Um, <laughs> who was Thomas Nichols? You know, thinking about him in that position, uh, what was his point of view? What, what, you know, were his eyes wide as he saw these ladies taking off their stockings? Was he nervous? You know. Um, did he even notice that uh, the the slaves who were attending to them were not allowed to dance? You know, that, was that a factor? Those kinds of questions um, animate uh, the history that I'm I'm relating and sharing, and um, make it you know feel relevant today, and also just allow us to to imagine ourselves in that situation. So we always imagine ourselves uh, through uh, fantastical encounters with other people, I think. It's like dreams, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I dreamed of Thomas Nichols. I dreamed of Florence Mills. I, I dreamed of Thomas Dorsey uh, writing uh, Take My Hand, Precious Lord, after his wife had died and, and, uh, and the tragedy of his young, losing his young wife and his son. Um, in childbirth, uh, all of those, all of those uh, imaginary encounters allowed me to feel emotionally invested in this material and hopefully communicate that same sense of emotion to the reader. In your third chapter, you focused on gospel music, mm-hmm. yeah. and you compare gospel quartets like the Songbirds of the South and the Spirit of Memphis to rock bands. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little more about that? Yeah, that's a crazy idea that I put <laughs> forward. <laughs> that, that I totally, um, you know, sometimes you have, you, you're writing stuff and you're like, oh yeah, everybody thinks of, for example, like Jim Morrison, everybody thinks of him as a, 
a debauched rock god. And if I talk about him in that way, it's not really new. Maybe I can just talk about it in a in a lively way that that reinforces what we already know. But sometimes you have an idea and um, you're like, huh, maybe I'm completely wrong, but I'm just going to throw this out there. <laughs> so that's sort of what happened with this. I, when I, when I, I, I will tell you, I, I was not an expert on gospel when I started writing that chapter. I really had to immerse. One reason this book took me so long was because I would spend, you know, six months to a year before I could even start writing a chapter because I had to like educate myself. And um, with gospel music, that's what happened. I started exploring uh, different facets of it. I live in the South, um, so I think I was particularly engaged with um, the histories of these uh, performers who were moving throughout the South. Um, And I started to notice certain things about these quartets, certain elements of... um, of their music and of the way their live performances were talked about. You can see uh, a lot of uh, clips of gospel quartets on YouTube and stuff like that. And I started thinking, wow, okay, so they're not really, they're not playing guitar, bass, and drums necessarily, uh, usually they're acapella, but, and yet there's the way, the way in which these men would relate to each other, um, certain movements, uh, you know, choreographed or not, uh, certain ways they vocalized really made me think about um, rock bands, <laughs> you know, whether mm-hmm. it was the kind of homo-social verging on homoerotic uh, energy flowing among them or the way they related to their audience. I mean, they really turned the women on, you know, even though it was all for, for Jesus. Um, <laughs> or, or, you know, something like the um, the drive, which is a, a section of a, of a gospel song is sort of like an improv section that happens uh, half two thirds of the way in and how that replicated kind of the build in a rock song. Um, so I just threw that theory out there. I hope people like it. <laughs> we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. <laughs> Great. Um, so I'm going to read a, a little short excerpt from Chapter 4 and ask you a question about it. So in Chapter 4, you say... What rock and roll added to the equation was a commitment to representing adolescence, not adulthood, and a unique combination of fantasy and accessibility. To teens, the stars of rock and roll were just like them and could very possibly become their friends or even lovers. For teenage girls, a sense of intimate possibility within rock and roll blended with a growing social acknowledgement of their own sexuality to form a potent elixir. Um, This section that the chapter in general is, is particularly striking, you know, particularly in the me too era, um, Mm. as you talk frankly about the ways in which rock and roll provided an outlet for teenage girl sexual fantasies and existed within this paradigm where adult male rock stars like Elvis, Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis engaged in sexual acts with underage girls. Yes. Um, Can you talk a little more about this chapter and, and yeah, just how you kind of grappled with all of that? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's was 
So I wrote this book before you heard the hesitancy. <laughs> how, do I, how do I answer this question? Um, first of all, I guess I'll say, uh, as someone who, who once was a teenage girl and who currently is the mom of a teenage girl, I'm very interested and always have been in uh, telling the stories of teenage girls. And, and uh, I think I'm part of a, a, a contingency of, I was saying it's the wrong word, I, get, I think I'm part of like a, a little uh, group uh, of, of critics, writers, scholars who are really champions of teenage girls. Um, you know, you might start with that essay that Barbara Ehrenreich and some other people wrote about how uh, the girls who screamed for the Beatles, that was sort of like one root of American feminism. Um, Susan Douglas and uh, she, the historian, she's written about the importance of teenage girls and the formation of feminist uh, consciousness in, in the U.S. So these were writers who were influences on me, and I've, I've written many, many, many pieces uh, about teen culture. When I turned to the 50s and, and, and wanted to think about that subject for, for this book, uh, as I said before, I ha- had been able to go into the archive of the Rockwell Hall of Fame, and I discovered these fan letters, and I realized that um, those encounters uh, between teenage girls in the 50s and their uh, idols were not simply imaginary. <laughs> you know, I mean, the rock and roll circuit was a lot more, um, it was a lot smaller than than uh, what we think it might have been, because I think now we see rock and roll through the lens of arena rock, which had, a, I write about this too. I mean, there was certainly uh, a lot of, uh, encounters among uh, rock stars and teenage girls in the 70s, many of them quite disturbing. Uh, but in the 50s, it was a small scene, right? And so, so it, it, Elvis was always a huge star, but um, but even Elvis, when he would go to these uh, small towns or or Midwestern cities or Southern cities, and and he these girls and would be right there, like the connection was real. It was physical. And, you know, I found this one amazing letter uh, called the Kiss Letter. That's a uh, um, housed at UNC in their folklore archive, and it's a letter from a, a teenage girl describing kissing Elvis and how he was backstage kissing what seems like dozens of teen girls after he performed <laughs> one time. Um, you know, I think that she was delighted by this. You read the letter, and it's like she was thrilled. That, to have had this experience. And we're not talking a peck. We're, I mean, the way she describes the kiss, it's like long, deep, French, <laughs> all of those things. I mean, he was, he was definitely what, you know, in other, in another description, we, we would call this sexual assault potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she describes it as a, as a high point of her young life. Um, so th- I, I was really intrigued by this, the fact that um, what what I think historians and others have always considered to be um, sort of a, a fantasy realm was actually a real realm, you know, um, or at least seemed like a real, a potential real experience for so many girls in the 50s. And then things get ch- sort of changed in the 60s and 70s because rock uh, and popular music in general becomes such a much bigger, more corporatized arena. So so I was really interested in that, but I was writing this before the Me Too movement. And, you know, I really tried to be. I always am conscientious of 
you know, how do you balance uh, celebrating the empowerment and acknowledging the empowerment of uh, these girls and their sense of their own sexuality and their desire and determination to express themselves uh, sexually and their mm-hmm. right to do so? How do we balance that with the fact that um, some of them are being are also being exploited, and uh, you know that these adult men are, uh, you know, are are choosing to have encounters with these sometimes very young girls, and you know, I've written about this subsequently. It's like so many of uh, the biggest stars of early rock and roll had very serious and long term relationships with very young women. Um, young girls, you know, Elvis, his wife, Priscilla, she was what, 13, 14 when they met, obviously Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Chuck Berry, um, Buddy Holly was an interesting exception, but you know, most of these guys had much younger girlfriends or wives. So it's kind of embedded in the history of rock and roll. And it's also in the songs. Um, you know, so many, uh, classic rock and roll songs are about teenage Queens, about, uh, really, really young girls and their power over men, their power to uh, shape culture. But, you know, you can look at these another way and it's like kind of creepy and predatory, right? So um, mm-hmm. I, I guess it's about that balancing act of like acknowledging that um, individual girls and young women uh, did, did feel empowered by these experiences, that's, you know, by their own accounts. And I think it's, I really think it's wrong to, um, to not acknowledge that, you know, because that's, that's taking away their agency in a different way. Um, but at the same time, it's the foundation of an architecture of uh, hierarchies and exploitations within popular music that now, you know, that eventually leads to R. Kelly, you know, and right. Right. Uh, leads to those, those kinds of really horrifying um, realities. Yeah. So then how does it shift? Um, you know, in the next chapter, you, you, you talk about Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and yeah. Janis Joplin as countercultural sex symbols. Yeah. And then in the next chapter, you talk about groupies. Yeah. Um, how, how does this, how does this shift? How does the, um, you know, the young, the young teenagers who are following this music, um, and, and charting the erotic, how does that, right. how does that shift as time passes? Well, I, I uh, really think it's a, um, it's a capitalist story, you know. It's a story about money as much as it's about sex and sexism. Um, and it's about the growth of uh, the music industry and specifically the, the live music industry. Um, let's just take within rock. I think you can probably trace these same patterns within R and B and funk and soul. I found some interesting, I did a lot of archival research at Lincoln center library into a New York public library into old rock magazines and um, from the seventies and Rolling Stone cream circus magazines like this. There was even one called star, which you can find online that was actually devoted. It was sort of like a teen beat magazine, but for girls who wanted to um, basically sleep with rock stars. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a pretty disturbing document. Uh, uh, so looking at those magazines, what you see is 
the growth of this industry, um, bands start to play, uh, you know, sort of starting in the mid sixties when you have the festival circuit, um, then that, you know, you have these huge festivals, Woodstock, Monterey pop, Watts stacks, eventually, um, then you have kind of connected to and springing out of that, these very big tours, uh, bands start to play arenas. They start to play, they're not playing in small clubs, you know, they're, they're on the road constantly and touring is a huge part of this lifestyle, this, um, this machine and the machine sells records and, uh, the machine also sells tickets and generates a lot of money. And, uh, in order for the machine to operate, the musicians have to stay on the road and they have to commit to uh, weeks, months of touring uh, and, and playing in places where their music doesn't sound very good and, um, and they're sleeping in a different hotel every night and uh, they're on a bus. And uh, part of what keeps them going is the quote-unquote reward of uh, meeting women, right, in mm-hmm. every town, if they're heterosexual. I think there's a whole very, very buried queer story in here that that I only get to explore, I only touch upon it, but both in terms of, of you know, well, I guess I haven't seen the new Elton John movie. <laughs> maybe he, maybe that happens in that movie, but um, in Rocket Man, but, you know, yeah. both consensual encounters and then also, honestly, exploitation. And there's been some really horrifying uh, cases, especially in Europe and England, of uh, people like Gary Glitter who, who were really abusing uh, children, and uh, male and female. So uh, anyway, I digress. So, so this system, this thing I call the groupie system exists, which uh, means that you know, the artists, they are being exploited in a way. They're also benefiting hugely, obviously, financially, and they're enjoying the fruits of fame. But they're, they're, they're forced to be on the road all the time. And then part of the package, what's sort of provided for them is these women and these sometimes often teenage girls and, um, everything within the system creates the possibility for those encounters. You know, I think in the Me Too era, we think we, we often, uh, try to cancel or critique or, um, you know, express our, our, our moral indignation toward musicians. And I'm not saying that they don't deserve it often, but we need to also talk about the promoters, the managers, the people who worked at the hotels, the people who worked at the venues, mm-hmm. um, who were like creating these, these uh, pathways for these girls to meet these guys. Right. So like I found this one uh, in, account of the Hyatt house in Los Angeles on sunset strip, which uh, I think it was published in time. I can't remember off the top of my head, time or newsweek magazine. And it was about, you know, the Hyatt house, the ultimate rock and roll hotel. And, uh, that was like where Led Zeppelin hung out the most notorious, uh, band in terms of, uh, encounters with groupies probably in the history of seventies rock and many bands, everyone hung out at the Hyatt House. And in this article, it describes how the staff of the hotel had basically been instructed to let these underage girls run rampant in the hotel. And and run rampant makes it sound like they had tons of agency. It, it's pretty it's pretty disturbing. Like there's an, one paragraph about how a girl is passed out in the elevator 
and they just people just leave her you know the elevator is going up and down and this mm-hmm. poor kid is passed out but um you know why why wasn't anybody doing anything there <laughs> you know it's because right. all of this adds up to a way to reward the musicians who are um getting exhausted on the road and uh i think that pattern has it's, it continues to exist today you know i think me too has done a lot and continues to do a lot for um raising consciousness about these situations and and i i you know i'm hoping and and i'm seeing some evidence that um things have been are changing but certainly uh at the height of corporate rock this was reality and plus don't forget drugs drugs and alcohol huge part of the story um one that's not talked about enough i think um you know so often these guys in these bands were so high and so wasted that their moral judgment was truly impeded and the girls were too you know you mentioned that you you did touch a bit on on queerness um uh, in addition to race and gender in your book you talk a yeah. little bit about sexuality yes um and you you know, you talk about Madonna and Prince, yeah, um, Bowie, and then you also mentioned something that I thought was uh, you included the Cream magazine writer uh, Ben Saletti, yes, who was not particularly happy with the glam rock scene, or thought that was very interesting. How you know it seemed as though um, Bowie and um, folks who were participating in glam rock. Um, perhaps were um, uh, creating a space for fluid sexual experimentation or sexual identity, but then you had someone like Vince Aletti who was saying not so fast. Right, right. Uh, Vince is a, a great writer, someone I knew um, when I worked at The Village Voice. He was actually the art critic for The Village Voice and photography critic when I worked there in the 90s. But um, in the 70s, he's a really important music writer. And he um, he wrote for Cream and Rolling Stone and, and um, actually was the very first American writer to write about disco music. There's a great book called The Disco Files that collects all of his writing on disco. I rec- really recommend it to anyone who's interested in disco. Um, but, uh, but Vince, when he was writing about rock, you know, as a gay man, he made a very fundamental observation, which is, you know, it's great that we have these uh, gender fluid performances, but there still are no songs in which a man expresses desire for another man. Um, you know, there are no songs actually talking about gay love. And uh, there really weren't very many. I mean, there was an artist I talk about, Joe Bryath, who was um, had a brief, shining, meteoric career. Uh, he, he was a, a theater kid, like a member of the cast of Hair, and uh, a promoter discovered him, and he and he he made a couple records um, that are that are explicit. and And he toured. He had a brief and disastrous uh, arena rock tour, but you know it didn't it didn't catch fire. Uh, and I think that, you know, exposes the homophobia within rock and roll, even even at its most uh, gender fluid at that time. Uh, and, you know, someone like mm-hmm. Bowie, it's complicated because, oh, I just have to interrupt and say, if you hear that barking, <laughs> that's my little poodle. But anyway, uh, um, you know, I, I'm a huge Bowie fan. And I think 
And I actually recently wrote an essay for an anthology that that Daphne Brooks is editing out of Yale from a conference she uh, organized about um, but David Bowie and Prince. Where I write about uh, Bowie and Prince as these sort of and and this idea of the heterosexual closet, <laughs> which is uh, you know mm-hmm. these these men who were who were I think uh, I mean I I didn't know them. Personally, I was lucky to meet Prince once, never got to meet David Bowie. But, you know, from accounts that we have, it seems like they were uh, on the spectrum closer to straight. You know, they, uh, their most significant uh, love relationships were with women, et cetera. But, but uh, you know, they occupied fluidity and uh, kind of allowed a an o a gateway is that a strange maybe that's a strange way to talk about it but they, they allowed their listeners okay. to think about you know a wide array of erotic uh, uh, connections uh, even though they were kind of fundamentally still uh, expressing a heterosexual viewpoint and I think there's wonderful things about that but I also agree with Vince that um, you know. The fact that we and it, we're it's 2019 and and there are still so few uh, songs that really talk about same sex love openly. You know, this is a, one of the final frontiers, mm-hmm. and that's crazy. And I think fans of rock and roll often give themselves too much credit, frankly, for mm-hmm. um, their openness uh, when, in fact, there was a, there was historically a lot of homophobia. And I think once you get into the 80s and you see uh, what happened during the HIV AIDS crisis, which I also write about, um, the, the plague, um, you know, that becomes very clear. Okay. So your last chapter, you, uh, you talk about Britney Spears. Yes. Um, you also talk about Beyonce. Mm -hmm. Um, so you, you, you talk about Britney Spears as a cyborg. You just (laughs) say a little bit more about that. Yes, uh, I found this piece of fan art, which uh, which was kind of amazing. And it showed Brittany uh, with half of her pa- face peeled off and exposing the inner workings of a, of a cyborg. And that really got me thinking <laughs> about her and about the role she played in, uh, in pop music at a moment when a new generation... Uh, was coming of age and uh, was uh, um, coming of age in a new way, right? Through uh, experiences online and also through um, a a rapidly growing uh, cosmetic uh, surgery industry. So even teenagers are, you know, uh, starting in the 2000s, you find all these accounts of like teenage girls, um, considering getting breast implants and teenage boys taking steroids, right? And so, so um, the millennial and post-millennial generations who who love Britney Spears and for whom she was an avatar, um, you know, they're thinking about themselves, their sexuality, their identities uh, in a, in a way that is to previous generations, including I guess myself, seem almost like science fiction, right? And so Britney. Um, mm-hmm. She is a perfect 
pop star for that moment because of her voice. It's not so much her body or her physical presence because, you know, if you look at especially early pictures of Britney, she's like the girl next door. Um, I actually have a little magnet that someone gave me from the very first promotional, uh, like, package that was sent out to journalists uh, when Brittany was debuting. And it was a pink backpack and it was full of like some blue lip gloss and some other things. I had these little magnets and it's a picture of Brittany. It just says Brittany. And it's very wholesome looking. Like I actually have it on my fridge and people don't even notice. They think it's just one of my nieces. (laughs) You know, she doesn't look different than anybody else, but her voice, you know, she was working with uh, the producer, Max Martin, who is um, one of the biggest star and innovator of Scandinavian pop, which really took over um, popular music in the early mid two thousands. And her voice is processed, so processed and uh, really, uh, you know, the perfect voice for an age of uh, digital music when uh, voices can be kind of chopped up and sped up and auto-tuned and, and compressed. And so to me, she she was just a great uh, emblem of a time when we are all starting to live and experience desire and experience co- connection in these ways that um, that feel very science fictiony at times. Well, and Beyonce, <laughs> you um, so this is a very I thought, I thought the part about Beyonce was particularly interesting. This idea of her persona. Um, and being able to um, be a person who has um, both a public life and a, and a private life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you include an interview where Beyonce says, a little quote from her, and when I perform, this confidence and this sexiness and this whatever it is that I'm completely not just happens, unquote. Yes. Um, I thought that was really striking. Uh, so what does Beyonce's desire um, and ability, let's say, to hold the boundary between her public and private selves say uh, about this sort of this larger thing that you're exploring in your book about the sex and the erotic in American popular music? Well, what happens in the 21st century as uh, we all go online and we all begin to experience our lives as, you know, eventually almost as much online as, as in the meat world, as I think William Gibson once called it, um, is that, uh, people need new, uh, role models in order to, to understand how to manage these new experiences. And, uh, one thing I see in Beyonce's career is, uh, that she becomes a kind of role model for this. Um, you know, she's always been a paragon of self-control and she's always been, uh, a highly managed and self-managed, um, pop star. I think, you know, her biography or the story of how she started in this girl group that was managed by her, her dad. And then there were some conflicts and she kind of took over, but at the same time she gets together with her husband, eventual husband, Jay-Z, and they form this empire. Um, you know, he's one of the most successful rappers and he's a mogul and she becomes, um, the superstar. And I think a great artist, but also a very, uh, you know, someone who just exemplifies drive and ambition and self-control. Well, um, this works within both within her art, uh, within her music, really within her videos, 
and also within her online presence um, to kind of help people understand how to negotiate life online, right? So uh, I talk about the video single ladies and how that became, you know, kind of the first video meme where people were uh, uh, in, imitating the dance she did. And she's dressed in that video. She's, it's her with two other dancers and she's wearing this glove that um, looks like a virtual reality glove. So, uh, and, and she's in a, an infinity cove, which is, you know, a cinematic technique that, um, of, of set design that makes uh, you look like you're kind of floating in a white space. Also used by Madonna, in, interestingly enough, in uh, one of her early videos. Hmm. Uh, so she, she's, you know, she's like in this infinite space. She's not in the world. <laughs> and she's, uh, she's kind of like an avatar that you would see on a screen. Uh, so that's one way that she connects herself to the cyber world. And then uh, and then when she, you know, starts to use social media and uh, she's uh, using Instagram and Tumblr and uh, these social media platforms to curate her life, you know, she stopped doing interviews. She stopped um, uh, basically messing with the conventional uh, media. And she's like, you know what, I'm just going to do it all myself. I'm going to create my own uh, documentary specials. I'm going to, you know, put pictures when she had her children, she, you know, her first daughter, and she went through a lot uh, and told the story of what she'd gone through to, to uh, become a mom. Um, you know, she documented this all on her, her Tumblr, I think first, and then her Instagram. And um, by doing that, she's, she's showing others like how you might do this and still maintain an aura of privacy and control over yourself. You know, meanwhile, other celebrities, including Brittany, are falling victim to uh, scandals that are just totally perpetuated online, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when Brittany has a breakdown and shaves her head in a, a Los Angeles uh, hair salon in the Valley, um, it's it, the, the pictures go viral, right? Um, and this would not happen to Beyonce. <laughs> it just wouldn't happen. You can't imagine. The closest thing was there was one time, and I don't know if I read about this, but there was one time there was like a, a camera in an elevator and, uh, and uh, Beyonce and her sister Solange and Jay-Z were in it and Solange yes. like hits Jay-Z or something, right? And like there's this mm-hmm. scandal-ish moment uh, in which, uh, you know, what's going on? Did Jay-Z cheat on Beyonce? There's all these rumors. Well, but then even what came out of that, what does Beyonce do? And in probably, uh, you know, in cooperation with her husband and her team and everyone, she then goes on to uh, take that moment of scandal of loss of control of her image and craft from it uh, her album's uh, first her self-titled album and then her album Lemonade that's all about uh, you know her marriage and she's like I'm telling this story you know I'm telling this story the paparazzi are not telling this story the critics and the journalists are not telling this story nobody's telling this story but me and she does this all online so then she becomes also the first major pop star to drop a truly surprise album um, with her first self-titled album, Beyonce, and then later with Lemonade that, you know, cre- you know, again, creates this category of the internet event in music. So 
she is living online in a way that feels healthy, managed, successful. She's thriving online. And, you know, meanwhile, everyone in the world is like feeling overwhelmed by social media and like their online lives are kind of out of control. So mm-hmm. my theory is, you know, Beyonce is the superstar of our age for many reasons. One reason is because um, she is embodying the ideal of online existence. Well, Anne, we've taken up a lot of your time. I have <laughs> I'm happy a f- to talk. Enjoy. <laughs> um, I do have a final question for you. Um, what are you working on now? Uh, well, I'm I'm working on a couple of different things. I am working on a book about Joni Mitchell. It's not going to be a standard biography. David Yaffe published a, a good biography a few years ago or now called Reckless Daughter. Um, so I'm writing a book that's uh, that's as my editor describes it, sort of 13 ways of looking at Joni Mitchell or, you know, playing on the William Carlos. Is that William Carlos Williams? Oh my goodness. My poetry education. I've gone so far from my graduate school days. (laughs) Anyway, I'm working on a Joni Mitchell book. Uh, And uh, it looks at her, um, her career in, uh, as it, you know, as it was shaped by the culture from which she emerged and, uh, also as it has shaped a legacy um, and influenced so many artists. So, uh, you know, I'm having fun talking to people uh, who knew her from her earliest days and also talking to um, some people that whom she's greatly influenced. So that's a project. And then I'm also working on um, the third season of Turning the Tables, which is the project I helm at NPR Music, which is about recentering the popular music canon on Um, marginalized, underrepresented, or hidden in plain sight voices uh, and uh, legacies. So um, this year we're focusing on founding mothers or foremothers. So we're looking at great women artists of the early to mid 20th century. So um, that will be launching uh, in a little while. Well, these sound like fantastic projects. So I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. I loved talking to you. Great questions. Thank (laughs) you so much. (laughs) All right. We'll take care. (laughs) Okay, bye-bye.